happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. You're listening to the podcast from the Airbnbs around the world. No, this is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 267 for August the 17th, 2022. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am coming to you from an Airbnb uh, in Matthews, North Carolina. And that is one of the reasons why for the second week, we are an hour earlier coming to you from uh, the East Coast, as well as the Mountain Time, and blessing us and gracing us with his mere presence in what obviously looks like a new area, uh, although sometimes he's got a virtual background, so you can't really tell. But it is Dr. Jason Neifer, the guru of the North and the West, <laughs> and apparently now of the Airbnbs in Washington State. Is that correct? Dr. Yes, that that is correct. I am joining you tonight from an Airbnb in, I guess, North Western Spokane, Washington, where I have taken a couple of days away from uh, my home in Missoula, Montana. To actually, it's it's warmer here somehow than it is in Missoula, which is a little weird. I did get to 102 today in Spokane, which is uh, a little crisp. So luckily, the Airbnb that I was able to pick up has air conditioning. In fact, I wouldn't have been able to do that without air conditioning because I. 102 is a little much for me, um, but I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located in the lovely western Montana city of Missoula, Montana, on the University of Montana campus. But I don't think we're here tonight to talk about our day jobs, Wes. Well, at least in a way we are. What is the EdTech situation, ed tech situation Room all about? Well, that's right. I've got to get ready to say my I'm I'm a a media literacy and computer science teacher in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, we are here to talk about the tech news and together with uh, sometimes family and friends. So I see that Peggy George has joined us. I think that my dad may be coercing more relatives to watch tonight's show. And we just got another live viewer, so they may have tuned in. But we are here to talk about the last week of tech news. Uh, but Dr. Neifer, I actually copied over all the links to count them. We have 34 different article links tonight, uh, which I can guarantee everyone we will not be talking all about. But uh, Jason and I like to share the articles and things like that that we're reading throughout the week. And a number of those we put into a Google document, which you can access at edtechsr.com slash links. Generally, you can access past shows there as well. Um, I'm a little behind on getting those published, but thankfully, YouTube and Facebook are archiving our shows live. Uh, and so if you're not able to join us live, uh, you can join, you can see the archive. And we also usually are able to put the links into the live chat, which is also visible as well. So Dr. Neifer, with 34 different links to choose from tonight, where would you like to start? Well, uh, there are a lot of interesting things, uh, interesting things in the links this week. So maybe we'll start with some of the, the more techie, techie stuff. Um, first and foremost, I have a couple of Apple things I want to share first. This is late breaking news, but Apple is, uh, holding a, an iPhone event, which is presumably the iPhone 14. I believe it's September 7th. So in early September, um, uh, uh, Apple will be announcing something. And I've seen a couple of headlines and maybe read the first paragraph of one or two articles uh, suggested that they expect there to be a, a plethora of phones available. So perhaps it's the same as the iPhone 13, which will have a range of sizes and a range of, of, of capacities all the way from the, the, the 13 Pro Max down to the iPhone mini uh, and everything in between. So that's exciting news. Uh, if you're an Apple aficionado, um, I will say one thing that I would be looking for, um, and I'm not sure if this is enough for me to upgrade or not, but I'd be looking for USB-C uh, connector on the bottom of the iPhone. Because if I can get a, a phone with a USB-C connector, an iPhone with a USB-C connector, that means all my devices, um, except a few handful of legacy devices, are USB-C. So curious, Dr. Fryer, anything you'd like to see out of a new iPhone this fall? Well, I don't know that I would step up to the mo to the latest and greatest, but as we know, whenever a new one comes out, the older models just get that much, you know, less expensive. Uh, so yeah. I, I agree with you. You know, I've mentioned on the show before, I don't have this iPad anymore because I 
had to turn it back to school. But I had an iPad Pro with a USB-C charger uh, that really made that nice uh, in terms of laptop, you know, anyway, just using the same the same charger that I use with my laptop and, and my iPad. And it would be nice to be able to just have the phone as well. I mean, Apple's notorious for, you know, requiring lots of chargers and adapters and, and all kinds of things like that. But as we brought to you on the show either last week or in the last few episodes, Europe, uh, in, in Europe, their uh, parliament or, or the EC, I guess, has... Um, has passed regulation that was would require, if I'm remembering right, Apple to to go ahead and offer a, a USB-C and basically come into compliance with with the world of Android, which is already pivoting, I think, to a primarily USB-C architecture for smartphones. So I see that as a win for consumers. I really don't know of a downside other than the fact that that those of us that have Apple devices have have a ton of Lightning cables. But you know, our Lightning cables wear out too, so. I don't know. Do you think USB-C is going to be more durable uh, than Lightning? Any Is there any like evidence on that? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I guess my, my general experience has been that um, the Lightning cable has been pretty pretty solid. And what I do like about the Lightning cable is it's that single piece of metal that plugs into a socket as opposed to USB-C, which uh, there's something that's being inserted into the USB-C end of the cable as well, not just the uh, uh, information around it. So that's something I'd be concerned about uh, over time, but the ubiquity of USB-C cables, and if you buy a good cable, you can buy good quality cables for eight, ten, twelve dollars on Amazon uh, that have, uh, you know, some in some cases lifetime warranties. And if you invest a little bit on cables, that should be good enough. Yeah. And then I want to share one other article that's been kind of lurking in our past articles for the last several weeks, but just because I, I, I find it to be interesting, I know a lot of people that do this in one way, shape, or form. But there's a really great nine to five Mac article on July fourth where uh, Michael Potluck, I'm sorry. Kudik is what I'm trying to say there, not potluck, um, writes a, a really great guide if you want to use an old iMac as a monitor. And I know a lot of folks right now that had uh, uh, purchased an iMac in 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17-ish. They're getting to the extended life of that product. It isn't getting operating system updates anymore. As it turns out, there's a lot of ways, either using built-in Apple capability or third-party software where you can essentially take your iMac and turn it into an external display for another machine. And the reason why I think that's interesting is because um, the the uh, Mac, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Mac Mini M1, uh, which you can buy the lowest end version for under $700, is an extraordinary upgrade if you're using a six or seven year old Mac or iMac at work or at home, and you want to continue to use the beautiful display that came with it. And so if you're interested in that as a um, possibility, um, I thought this article was really good to go over the different options. It's not a universal panacea because some of the options are better than others. Some of them may or may not work if they require networking at all. But I love this article because it does a really good job of, of kind of showing off all the different options you might have to turn your iMac into a display-only situation. Folks, you know Dr. Neifer has changed my life in many ways, most recently with the AirTag revolution, which actually has allowed us to track our pod across the country. And it, it is in Charlotte. It's supposed to be delivered. Next <laughs> week. Um, thank really you, good Air- idea, by the way. Thank you, Dr. Neifer. Yeah, it's amazing. But this is great because, as I may have mentioned, um, I was able to purchase when our school got rid of a bunch of old technology um, the old 27-inch iMac that sat on my desk when I was tech director from 2015 to 2019. And um, I think it was a 2011 model. And it is beautiful. And during the pandemic, um, you know, I just became became kind of spoiled being able to have an iMac, you know, set up all the time. And I, and, you know, with my, at the time, iPad Pro, I could take my M1 uh, laptop Mac Mac Air and use the iPad Pro as an extended display. And I did that lots with, uh, especially for grade entry, the way our grade book and Google Classroom and everything like that, which I'm kind of still in that same boat in my, my current teaching role. So this is extremely exciting. And I have saved that article and I'm going to be trying out some of those solutions. So that's super, Good. that's super exciting because that yeah, I have, I breathe back. new life. I breathed new life into that iMac, you know, years ago, 
with a USB uh, hard drive. Um, it wasn't a USB-C. It was just, uh, a f- I forget what it was, but what, what, what's the faster USB, um, USB-A? I don't remember my brain. I'm, I am over 50, man. I'm showing it. Anyway, there is a, there are, there, there are, there's a port on there that is a faster USB, uh, a port. And, um, it, you know, it was like a revolution to, to move beyond, I guess it's the bus speed of the, of the built-in bus that was in that iMac and then being able to just boot directly off of an external drive like that. So anyway, yes, yes. The, the return on investment from Apple products continues. So if you were hoping to just have Google, Google fan, you know, news tonight, sorry to disappoint. We got to throw in some Apple love. Yeah, ain't, ain't that the truth. Okay, well, um, now that we did a couple of nerdy ones, uh, maybe let's talk a little bit of security. So uh, there's a really interesting article. This was from yesterday from ZDNet. Um, and hackers are finding ways around multi-factor authentication. And a couple things. First, ZDNet has rebranded. Um, and so they are using different color schemes now and a new logo very modern looking, uh, kind of uh, 20 year ago wired-ish uh, 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 design, but I just noticed that uh, getting back in this article. Um, but this article uh, discusses, from Danny Palmer discusses some of the ways that people are trying to get get around multi-factor authentication. And there's all sorts of, of, of social hacks that you can do um, to be able to uh, try to trick people into doing that. Um, but this article goes into some detail about uh, the, the way cyber criminals are trying to move around things, the way they create false uh, layers of, of so-called protection to try to steal uh, your two-factor authentication codes. And then, of course, the longstanding advice that Dr. Fryer and I have given out uh, includes, uh, you know, you should try to use an authentication app as much as possible as opposed to doing text messages, because if someone's truly uh, trying to steal your identity, not just a general identity, there's ways to uh, actually get into people's uh, 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 text signals. So using an app is a generally more secure strategy than using a text message number. So we just have the title of the show, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be called Stealing Your Cookies. Because uh, as you get into this article, which which I scanned, um, it's not an actual break of multi-factor authentication, but it's like, I I guess this is like a man in the middle attack, but it's a way of capturing credentials, which are are saved or passed along sometimes in cookies. And so, wow. In fact, let me let me read this uh, paragraph. That's because the attackers haven't broken the MFA, multi-factor authentication themselves. They've managed to bypass it by stealing the cookies and are now able to use the account as if they were the user, even if they go away and come back later. That means despite the presence of multi-factor authentication, it's unfortunately being made redundant in this situation, and that's bad for everyone. So as we have talked about before, social engineering is continuing to explode and it's just not going away folks i'm sorry you know newsflash crime has been here forever and crime is going to continue and so cyber crime in these forms uh, can be lucrative for people and this is why we need to continually be vigilant and try and protect ourselves and our families and as teachers talk to students and parents and everybody else about ways that we can try and make ourselves less of a target all right. Uh, I think I'd like to do a security article as well, if that's all right. Uh, Please. This one. Um, let's see. Did I move this into the Google? Um, ugh. Um, I thought I had a security article, and now this is so exciting to have radio silence. Um <laughs> Oh, there it is. Okay. I put it under miscellaneous. Uh, a new jailbreak for John Deere tractors rides the right to repair wave coming to us from Wired Magazine, which incidentally, if you've, if you've read a number of Wired articles, <laughs> speaking of, of hacks, this isn't a jailbreak, but um, one of the things that I admit to doing from time to time, rather than subscribing to Wired, which I'm sure I should do and subscribe to everything we read, um, and I do subscribe to things like the Washington Post and the New York Times. But 
you can open up an incognito window. And I think this actually has to do with cookies as well, because the website will track if you've read several articles and after you've gotten to some point, then it says, oh, you better you know, create a free account in order to continue reading. We have talked about the right to repair on the show. I think it's been a while, <clears throat> but you know, um, different companies have passed these rules, which in some cases are protected by like copyright law uh, to prevent people from fixing their own stuff, like printers and printer ink, um, tractors in the, the world of, of farming, which I will admit to you, I am certainly no expert when it comes to agriculture, but in addition to staying from time to time at Holiday Inn Express, uh, we have a, have a you know, good family friend back in Lubbock, Texas. He worked for Monsanto for a number of years and, and was just a fascinating guy. But, you know, he was, and this would have been in the early 2000s, uh, early to mid 2000s. He would describe the things that, that uh, farmers were doing at that time. And we're talking cotton farming in West Texas. Just unbelievable in terms of the space technology, knowing exactly what the yields were in different areas, putting down the precise amount of fertilizer and, and seed and, and whatever else is required in terms of planting. Well, John Deere, so, you know, manufacturer of huge hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars tractors, uh, prohibits its customers from repairing stuff themselves. And in some cases, according to the article, uh, they force uh, security updates or, or like firmware updates to be pushed down to the tractors without the farmer's control. Um, and in some cases, they'll require them or they have in the past to come to a dealership and they won't let them do it themselves. Well, there is an Australian hacker who uh, just did a presentation at DEF CON security um, and <laughs> I'm going to have to open this up in an incognito window because my other window is not allowing me to read it because uh, I want to get his name. Uh, I guess he had done a presentation back in 2021 and uh, his his alias or I don't know what you call the his hacker name is called Sick Codes. Um, but he has revealed some uh, exploits that are not remote attacks. You have to have physical uh, control of the of the tractor. Um, but it, it literally allows someone to root the tractor and then, you know, be able to control it, uh, being being able to, um, you know, basically manipulate the software in, in any way that he would want to. I guess at the bottom of the article, it says also run a custom farm themed doom on the tractor. Um, but why is this important? Well, uh, the. Right to repair is a thing. It's a movement. In fact, it could be something to talk with your students about, right? Because with a lot of consumer products that you buy today, if it breaks, you can fix it. But, you know, again, companies are using uh, laws in different countries as ways to basically protect their bottom line and stop people from being able to fix it. So one of the ways this is important is it points to security vulnerabilities uh, for one of these things, I think he actually soldered something directly onto the circuit board. And, you know, this is some pretty, sounds like some pretty intense hacking. But the role of hackers in cases like this, and this is something I talk to my kids about and, and visit with, because we need uh, security defenders in the digital space, just like we do in, in the physical or the kinetic space, as it's sometimes called. Um, we need to, to know what these vulnerabilities are. And in fact, there's big money that's being made by folks who are able to identify uh, and either exploit offensively, and that stuff you know, is, is oftentimes secret. It's also, you know, can be criminal too, <clears throat> but it also is the case that, that these things need to be patched and companies you know, rely on hackers and uh, events like DEF CON in some cases to find out about things. So anyway, there's a little right to repair article. Uh, Dr. Neifer, do, do you suspect there might be some folks living in your home state of Montana that might be familiar with some of these frustrations that we're talking about in this article with respect to agriculture and tractors? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it's, it's really one of those things that uh, it, it's a subtle thing that's occurring. But we had the article a couple, I think it was last week, maybe it was a couple weeks before that, where uh, uh, hard, or I'm sorry, um, hardware as a service. In other words, 
Um, you know, if you want the heat seater, heat seaters, uh, no, the, the seat heaters is what I'm trying to say there, uh, on your car. And it's not something you bought, purchase as part of your package. They'll try to upsell you or even worse, charge you monthly for access to stuff you already own. And this is all lumped in with that. This notion of locking everything down with software and not giving you the right to utilize third party parts if you wish. It's all a part of this big picture. And it's been happening really, uh, on computers for years and years and years. And, you know, there are still some user upgradable parts in most laptops, but your modern day MacBook with an M1 chip, um, is, is not really user repairable. There's nothing to upgrade. There's nothing to do inside of there. And they have things pretty well locked down, which they want you to go to a, an, a, a qualified, I'll put in quotation marks, Apple technician at an Apple store. So yeah, I, I'm disturbed by this, uh, because I feel like it, in a lot of ways, it really isn't rewarding innovation or rewarding, um, uh, 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 people acting correctly in the marketplace. And instead it just seems to be like the ultimate upsell. It's like one of those deals where you, you like check into a hotel room and it's twenty nine ninety nine, And suddenly if you, you want air conditioning on a hot day, it's another $5 a day or, the super low cost airlines that will sell you a ticket at a super cheap price. But, you know, if you want to sit where you want, that's another hundred dollars. If you want to check a bag, it's another hundred dollars. If you want to carry, carry on to another hundred dollars, um, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, it's something to keep an eye on. And I think this is particularly troubling for schools. So with 34 links to go through, I think we have done three, maybe four. So, well, maybe we should take requests. Uh, Peggy, if you want to put in a, an article request, I would love, Jason, if you would do the notification hell article. Would you mind uh, touching yeah. on that one? I think we've we've got that one down under, uh, is that a miscellaneous? Uh, it's under privacy, although this probably under also privacy. qualifies for tech correction as okay. well. Um, so, okay. Allison Johnson reports in The Verge on August 5th that uh, as she claims we're living in a notification hell. And I love the beginning of this article. It starts instantly enough. You download an app. The app asks you permission to send you push notifications. You think, sure, why not? What harm could come of it? And I like to show, or I like to know when my packages arrive or when my burrito is ready. But then you download more apps and more apps and more apps. You need to set the permission to send you notifications before you know it. You look on your screen. Oh, it's a wash and apps are clamoring for your attention. And, um, the uh, there's two parts to this article. The first one is just generally describes the situation we're in right now with your 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 phone notifying you uh, on relatively low importance notifications. And what I part of why I love this article is that because I've been giving uh, uh, sessions on this at conferences since uh, 2016, and I still have the same iPad uh, screenshot in my master presentation that when that I took in. 2017 and showed me all sorts of junk notifications, like ones that just weren't of, of any real value, weren't really clear to me, didn't give me any information that I needed at that point. And um, as it turns out, it's just gotten worse. And although I very carefully curate and turn off notifications on my phone, and, and I'm kind of obsessive about it, actually, the bottom line is I still get a lot of junk notifications uh, throughout the day. So this author talks about how distracting that is and how it makes cell phones of much less value, which is one of the points I make to teachers and then we should be making to students. And then second, gives some instruction, particularly on iOS, which has a very uh, finite set of controls on how you receive notifications. Android's getting there too, um, but gives you the instructions to do that. So your thoughts, Dr. Fryer? So I'm reminded of... Well, this, this speaks to the behavior that we need to have on a regular basis, right? Because what she's describing is if you install an app, can I send you a notification? Sure you can. You know, you just end up with more and more. Uh, it is nice how Apple, and I don't know what this looks like on an Android, because it's been a while since I had my nine months of Android phone use. <clears throat> but, you know, you can completely silence everything. But, you know, personally, I do want some notifications, but I want to be really selective. And I'm just thinking about, because I'm, you know, starting a new semester with kids. This was our second second day back to class. Um, and I am teaching a computer applications course, this time for 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. And it's a semester long. 
Um, but I'm going to be, you know, talking about uh, email filtering and unsubscribing from uh, from email and, and the ways you can do that. If it's a legitimate, you know, email, they're going to let you unsubscribe. Sometimes they're still tricky. Uh, Duolingo and some other ones are pretty, pretty uh, like there's, you know, six different unsubscribe, you know, boxes you have to check. But this kind of thing about installing apps and notifications uh, becomes more of an issue as students have their own phones and can install their own apps. Um, but I, I definitely, you know, think this is a hugely important issue and it, it speaks to the, the idea of an attention economy that we've talked about before, um, you know, where people are, are trying to get our attention in all kinds of ways. And this is, this is media literacy. Uh, this is also wellness. It's a lot of things, but uh, you know, our attention is a very valuable thing. And it, it behooves all of us to try and be intentional about what we're paying attention to and also what we're allowing to distract us or, or get our attention. So I uh, was glad to see that. Peggy has put in a request for the article on background blur for videos. Oh, uh, this is uh, this one's been around for a while, but uh, this is a super interesting one as well. I believe this is from Chrome Unboxed. Uh, the better background blur is in the works for web-based video calls. And Robbie Payne, the uh, editor over at Chrome Unboxed, um, was referring to that there are a lot of efforts going on um, to um, uh, try to help uh, various uh, codecs uh, create um, uh, uh, new metrics so that the blur effect is both more effective and less CPU, or CPU intensive. And they're looking at different ways to be able to do that. And there's a couple of what's referred to as Git repositories. Those are uh, open source code bases that uh, individuals can um, uh, contribute to. But they're expecting there to be some efforts and some cool things happening in uh, coming months uh, in regards to the blur. And uh, Robbie Payne does a really great job in this article. I'm explaining why the blur is such an attractive option. It's, it's not a fake background. Uh, per se, and to be clear, I'm I'm in my uh, 1911 um, uh, Craftsman Airbnb, so this is not. Even though this looks a little hipster in the background here, uh, it's actually an Airbnb that I'm in. But um, I sometimes use a fake background. I'm from Montana. I like to show off. We've got some mountains here, so showing off a good Montana photo is great. But the blur, you know, make sure that you don't lose complete a connection with your background, but also you're not looking at the mess that's maybe on the kitchen counter or uh, you don't feel like you need to clean up for your Zoom call, uh, which is a bit awkward in itself. So I thought that was a really great uh, thing to look forward to in uh, video calls. The other thing that stands out for me in this article is, is GitHub and the role of open source software and open source repositories. You know, I'm still teaching middle school uh, computer science and coding um, actually, my other class is robotics this year, <clears throat> but, um, you know, where, where I just left Cassidy School, um, one of our computer science teachers, Eric Ebert, was using GitHub Classroom, uh, which is free to use. And I, I know some of this, not only because of knowing him, but also our daughter took his class. And so they were actually using GitHub to, to, to turn in code and to fork code and, and to do, you know, development. And this was a basic, basic Python class for high school students. But I thought that was exceptionally wonderful to introduce students to that platform. Because if you are in computer science and you're in coding today, you're going to be using, you know, Git uh, repositories uh, for, for all kinds of things. Um, I reminded about probably, gosh, this was, I don't know if this was 10 years ago, um, but I was working with a local WordPress developer in the Oklahoma City area uh, who really wanted to promote WordPress as a web design platform in our our schools and, and in vo vocational schools. And, you know, Dreamweaver and kind of the old ways of doing stuff, you know, and Adobe is great and it, there's nothing wrong with 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 learning Dreamweaver. But if you're not learning WordPress and if you're not learning GitHub, are you living in 2022 in terms of web development? I don't think you are. And I think, and maybe that's really maybe a little harsh, but anyway, it, it makes me wonder, you know, what we're doing in some of our upper level coding classes at, at my new school. And I just would, I would do a shout out. And I'll, I'll try to put this into the show notes. <coughs> Check out GitHub Classroom. Again, I'm doing middle schoolers. We're doing block-based stuff and scratch kinds of things. 
you know, and so we're not, we're not quite there, but for sure, if you're doing high school coding, um, it's, uh, and I think there, maybe we could, that maybe we could segue to that. I think you have, we're just going to keep on going to the Nifer articles. I think you have an article about <laughs> CEOs talking about computer science. Do you not? That might be a segue. Yeah, I, I do. And this is a brief one. Um, and the reason why I picked up this article is because the number of folks here that we were talking about, but, um, there was a, a call in July where basically all the tech CEOs, uh, really uh, in the, the global largest tech CEOs, uh, signed a letter uh, imploring schools basically to uh, to offer computer science courses and classes. And uh, there's a, a, a broad focus um, uh, that I think is really important to think about and talk about, about the shortages that are, are, are still plaguing the technology industry in the United States and this notion of providing access to this critical area. Um, and, and I know there are several of them. I know there's a lot of trades areas that uh, unfortunately um, have also not kept up with demand, driving up salaries and costs for people that need to utilize their services. And so uh, just, you know, one more thoughtful piece out there. I don't, I do not like com- computer science for all initiatives, except that important that it helps teach logical thinking, right? Like if you expand out computer science, that definition, I think, is important for every student to get it. But I also think, though, that we should have robust computer science offerings available to every student that wants them because of the number of areas they could impact job-wise uh, that may really have nothing to do with the core of computer science. And so uh, uh, certainly something I'm passionate about in Montana through my program, and I imagine uh, Dr. Fryer is also very passionate about this topic as well. Absolutely. Again, at the school that my wife and I and, and daughter just left, um, they've had required Latin for seventh grade for a long, long time. This year, just I think kids maybe went back today. Uh, they no longer have that requirement in seventh grade. They have a computer science requirement, and it's a semester-long class. There's still Latin for eighth grade required, and I think then it's an elective after that. But uh, I would be curious, and maybe there are. I'm sure there's data that you know Hour of Code and some of these initiatives are, are gathering. Um, and it's interesting when things become a mandate, right? In, in Illinois, they have a state mandate now to teach media literacy, which on the one hand, may, might, you might think that, you know, is a, is a call for rejoicing for folks who are advocates of media literacy. <clears throat> but sometimes when things become mandates, you know, uh, it, they can be fraught with challenges uh, as, as that is tried to, you know, be pushed out and, and operationalized across you know, every, every school or every high school or whatever. So we definitely need champions of, uh, of coding and computational thinking, but, um, you know, just, just like everything else with reading or, you know, math or, or anything, you know, there's going to be a spectrum of perspectives on that. And, um, you know, go back to the source. We all need to read, read our Seymour Papert and, uh, you know, learn, learn about constructionism and, and the basics of all that. And what, what comes to the basics of all that is a pretty big revolution, the whole way we teach and, and a lot of the ways that, uh, that lessons are, are put together and things like that. But, you know, it's, it, it, it isn't true that we need more computational thinking and computer science is affecting virtually every career field. As I went this summer to Pittsburgh and did a Carnegie Mellon week-long workshop on robotics, I also learned, and I've talk to some folks back back here in, in North Carolina, we need kids who can operate robots and not necessarily design them from scratch, but put them together and code them and maintain them. I mean, we're, we're talking about a big workforce need, and it's not just Amazon and distribution centers that's needing that. So anyway, interesting to see that kind of a push. Let's hope we can have more funding because goodness gracious... You know, Oklahoma uh, had challenge schools. We certainly do here in North Carolina as well. So great to give a new mandate. But, hey, how about some funding? Because what is that called when we don't do those together? It's an unfunded mandate. <laughs> those are very fun. Totally. All right. Uh, well, I will stop I telling you what to talk about, sir. What, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> well, um, this is an interesting discussion, too. It might be of a bit of a rabbit hole, but we like rabbit holes here at the Addict Situation Room. Uh, this is from Tech Radar. Um, 11 days ago, it's telling me. So uh, the 6th of August, uh, the, the headline is, Why Can't Premium Android Phones Last As Long As Kindles? And uh, this is a 
very interesting, nerdy question for me. I, I will note they don't talk about iPhones at all, which in my general experience are generally better at battery life uh, than Android phone. But it's kept that because Android does have a massive advantage over iOS from the standpoint that if you want to buy a phone with a bigger battery on it, uh, if there's a need, there's generally some sort of niche device in the marketplace that will provide the right opportunity for you to get the phone with a bigger battery. But um, uh, it's, it's a really interesting article from the standpoint, and it basically argues that a lot of the bells and whistles that you've been, have been trained to look for as a consumer in the cell phone market all have a huge battery cost. So large, high-resolution uh, screens that have to push, you know, millions of pixels uh, uh, because of its high resolution. They look wonderful, but they trade off battery life. Um, if you have one of the high brightness screens, which your high end devices like the iPhone, like the higher end Samsung devices, uh, like the Google uh, higher end devices, those can be extraordinarily battery intensive because it takes more energy to push the brightness up. Uh, when you're using that phone. Um, and if you're a 5G person um, or you bought a 5G phone, that takes more power than a 4G radio. And in fact, uh, I'm not sure if this is this article, but I do know for, for a fact too that if your phone is even switching between one band and another, so 3G to 4G to 5G, back to 4G, back to 5G, down to 3G, as if, for example, you're driving down the highway uh, uh, in a relatively remote area, that can also be really traumatic to battery life. Um, and if you compare it to a Kindle, um, Kindle's got generally no connectivity, although I think they still sell 4G Kindles. Um, and also, um, they have the e-ink screen, which is good for reading, but that's really about it. Um, but the battery life is is really superior on that kind of device. So, I thought that was an interesting article. I do think that battery life is getting better on laptops, uh, in, in my humble experience, but we still haven't, don't have magic yet, uh, when it comes to, you know, two or three day batteries, um, on, on, on premium phones. So your thoughts about batteries, Dr. Pryor? Well, the other phrase I like from that article, well, I don't like it, but it's accurate, is battery anxiety. And he talks about it in the context of international travel. And that is so true. And it doesn't have to be international. It can be in a new area. You know, we're in a completely new metropolitan area here. And we're very reliant upon our phones with the maps and, you know, the ways we're going to be able to be guided and are guided around. So I know that when I was interested in getting an Android phone uh, before Egypt, like four years ago, uh, you steered me towards a pretty awesome, you know, battery heavy phone. It was like a 5,000 milliwatt hour or something. Anyway, it had, it had quite a bit of juice without needing to have an extra, extra pack on it. So I think the reality today is, especially if you're in the Android world, you know, look, I would, again, look for a, a phone that has a larger battery in an iPhone. You're not going to really have a choice, but what you can choose to do is keep your handy dandy anchor charging block or whatever, you yeah. know, available. And uh, <clears throat> we lost electricity uh, maybe a month or so before we left Oklahoma City. Um, and it was really just the transformer in our neighborhood. It took out like 12 houses, but we were without for almost 24 hours. And that was kind of a, a little dry run of, hey, you've lost power. How are you going to do there, you know, without electricity and um, having having charged power blocks like that's that should just be in your your ready kit you know not not like yep. you're you're going on a trip but it needs to to happen all the time in fact we steered our daughter she was thinking about gifts to give for graduation to i think it is the very anchor uh battery charger that maybe you recommended on the show so see you just change our lives all the time you 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 drive <laughs> consumer spending in the fryer home dr knifer uh in good ways um so anyway, that yeah, she bought a bunch of those, and that was a very practical gift, right, for heading off to college. What what's something everyone needs? Probably it's going to be a way to keep their device charged. So good article. Yeah, and also to be clear, I mean, here I am traveling, and I I have a an exceptionally curated curated group of uh, uh, tech devices that I travel with, and everything is in various kits. Oh, this is my travel cable kit. 
that has a very specific number of cables in there in different formats so that I, I don't ever go without. But I mean, that's, I have better, better anxiety. And as it turns out, this is the little anchor, um, magnetic block that just fits right on the back of my phone and can charge it back up a whole time. I have an iPhone 13 Pro. Um, and that's helped me a bit with that. But traveling internationally is probably the best example. If you're not thinking about that on the flight over the, the ocean, um, and you sat down and you were going to use, you know, your, your phone to call an Uber up or to get a three or a SIM card, uh, uh, when you arrive in that country to make sure you continue to have access, whatever it is, your phone's got to be charged to make that happen. The other thing to mention, and I just dropped the link into the chat for the anchor portable charger 313 power bank. 10,000 milliamp battery pack, you know, attend to formats because we are in a transition to USB-C. And so if you happen to have something old, that's USB-A, um, you know, that may not work. You may need an adapter. Um, but if you can find something that's going to support both, then that really, that really is flexible. This one's powerful enough. I think you can even, you know, charge a laptop for a while. Um, and that's also, you know, speaks to power consumption and why it's nice that the M1, you know, consumes less power and, and all those things. So very good, man. We got like 15 minutes left. Crazy. Okay. Well, should we talk about some podcasting? You bet. Yeah. That one about $50,000 has been around for a while. You want to hit that one? Yeah. So um, uh, this is from Bloomberg on August 3rd and uh, they ran kind of an in-depth article about a trend that's happening in podcasting, which is that some guests are paying upwards of $50,000 to be on popular podcasts. And this is from Ashley Carmen from Bloomberg on August 3rd. And um, uh, she's been kind of sniffing around the influencer world and found out that uh, for popular podcasters, especially ones, and I didn't recognize uh, some of the names um, on uh, this list of, of, of podcasts that, that, that uh, are accepting this money, but to get on a popular podcast celebrity or a wannabe celebrity or a company um, a CEO that's trying to get a startup product to take off will pay a healthy amount of money to a podcast to appear there. And I just thought for full disclosure, um, no money has changed hands in any circumstance at the EdTech Situation Room, including from obviously we don't run advertising and this is money out of uh, particularly Dr. Fryer's pocket as he hosts it. But Wes, any thought about that in regards to podcast as a kind of a new medium? Well, I mean, it just, it shows um, financially, I guess, in financial terms, the the power and popularity of podcasts. Uh, and we've mentioned before on the show how, you know, how wonderful podcasts are. And I'm we're probably preaching to the crowd with most, with a lot of people listening to this, but now, I mean, not everyone's getting it via podcast. I mean, you can be watching this on, on YouTube or Facebook and, and, and doing other things, but you know, podcasting has such tremendous potential to be a transformative learning platform. I mean, it has for me since podcasting started in like 2005. Uh, so I think there's still a lot of important value to sharing podcasting, uh, sharing it with teachers in our organizations. Uh, one of my favorite suggestions for like a pop-up conference session, and, and I'm hoping maybe to be able to attend an ed camp. Uh, ed camps are kind of have faded. I'm like, why? We need ed camps. But like, hey, let's just get together and share our favorite podcasts. You know, uh, Jason often shares a podcast uh, recommendation and that can be amazing. You know, I mean, much more. I mean, I would love to say I read an, a book every week. I, I certainly don't. But my consumption of ideas and media in terms of podcasts and, and now I've got a little bit longer commute. I mean, my my commute was 10 minutes. Now it's about 20 minutes. And so that's a 40 minute to and from school. So, um, yeah, podcasts are fantastic. We need to share the tools that we use, but also the podcast that we're listening to. Thankfully, we're not China, right? China has, they've monetized podcasts to a much greater degree than we have in the United States. Fortunately, you know, when podcasting took off and I know Leo Laporte in the, the tech, what is that? Twit network. They yep. were concerned about Apple even taking over the word podcast and charging people. They were, they called themselves netcasts for a long time. I think they've just gone back to podcasts, but yep. you know, in China, I think, but there are far fewer free podcasts than what we have here in the United States. And fortunately, you know, even though Spotify, you know, um, 
bought uh, what Gimlet Media and and they bought Anchor. Um, yep. Anyway, and there's a segue. Is it? I think there may be an Anchor article. Or is there, there, there is. Excellent, excellent, uh, Dr. Fryer. Throwing that to the next article. Uh, this is from back in July. Nine to Five Mac reported on July first that Spotify is adding a creation uh, tool to. It's the actual Spotify app itself. And basically, it's as simple as once um, you have a, a piece of media, you, put, you press on a, on a plus button and you can uh, upload it to Spotify for distribution. And so it's starting to uh, really democratize that platform. I mean, obviously, it doesn't take that much to start a podcast. Remember, Dr. Fryer and Dr. Knife pull it off. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it, it takes studios full of people to pull off a podcast. And I do fear a little bit uh, Spotify's kind of further, you know, tentacles to kind of hold all the podcasting world in the same way that, that uh, I think Lula Port was concerned about Apple controlling podcasts. I don't want Spotify to control it either, but how cool is it that the app that's probably already sitting on your kid's phone is also a podcast app that allows you to publish in the same way you might uh, 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 start to broadcast or upload on YouTube. I think that's a really cool thing. I thought about that, but first, uh, a digression. It appears that you have stepped onto the original scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark in the temple scene or whatever, when they're like down and, and you know, uh, Indiana Jones puts the amulet on top of the staff and the, the light shines because you've got this like spear of light. <laughs> okay, sorry. Hey, you know, come to an Airbnb. You never know what you're going to find. Um I would be curious, and maybe this article, I didn't get a chance to read the article yet. Is it only publishing the podcast for distribution via Spotify, or is it creating a public subscribable feed which could be used in any podcatcher? Because I will suspect that it is a Spotify-only podcast, and if it is, I think we shouldn't call it a podcast. I think we should call it Spotify uh, syndicated content or something else. Um, this is, you know, podcasting, there is a simplicity to it, but, but there also are a number of steps, uh, in order to make it a true podcast. Sometimes, and this is here, well, let's get to the classroom level, <clears throat> because if we're going to do an audio project with students, let's not call it a podcast. If we're not putting it on a public website in a subscribable feed that can be, you know, subscribe to with a podcatcher like pocket casts or Apple podcasts or, or, or Spotify or whatever. So um, the, the, the thing that, and we've talked about this before on the show, I think that we both have concerns about is with big players like Spotify, you know, and then also um, the, the purchase of, um, of the anchor app who bought anchor did Spotify buy anchor. They did, didn't they? They, they did. Yes, they did. Am I saying that right? Um, yep. so the, the fear that there was that it'll be, well, you can make a podcast, but it's only going to be available, you know, via Spotify. So hopefully anyway, we'll just have to check that out and see. Um, but yeah, if your students already have it, I know <clears throat> one of our, I think it was our, yeah, our eighth grade, uh, history teacher, uh, back at, at, at Cassidy, um, was, you know, for several years having kids create, uh, podcasts, um, they were really radio shows. They were really more audio, but again, you can take those things and put them into a feed and, and he was using the anchor app. So be interesting to see how that contrasts with the anchor app, um, in terms of editing bumpers, all that kind of stuff, because the anchor app, which is completely free is pretty robust as far as being able to produce a show. Dr. Neifer and I are producing a podcast each week. Uh, but you know, full disclosure, we're not editing this <laughs> unless something dramatically terrible would, would, would happen. Um, or, you know, it'd be said we're, we're just, we're kind of just publishing this as is, but most podcasts and certainly the ones that you're going to hear from NPR and, you know, uh, you know, all, all kinds of uh, professional sources are going to, to have bumper music and they're going to, you know, have transitions and, and it's going to be a lot fancier than just, you know, two guys that are in Airbnbs, opening their laptops talking to each yeah. other on a Wednesday totally. night. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I also, uh, the other thing that I think is really interesting about this, and I, and I feel do you about to say this because this is where I've been with advocacy with presentations lately. There is two sides to the podcast issue in the classroom. 
Uh, yes, there's the ability to publish pod, podcasts, which is awesome. A very laudable goal. Um, uh, it's been happening for 20 years in classrooms or maybe 18 years, I guess, since that's a, an earlier 2000 thing. But it's a great, uh, a great way to publish the community. But also remember, there is untold amounts of really outstanding content uh, for podcasts as well. And there is a lot of uh, and, and, and you can get, kind of go down the research rabbit hole on this. There's a lot of benefits to doing an audio only uh, listening uh, opportunity. It builds creativity. Um, it also uh, can help on focus uh, uh, if it only has uh, uh, presenting information to the listener. But remember, podcasts are also a stunning uh, content repository as well. Awesome. All right. Well, we've got about eight minutes. I think, man, there's so many good articles. And some of these go back a little ways. Um, so it's been a while since I've read these. But I think I want to hit this Atlantic article. This is called... The Trouble with Zooming Forever, and this is from July 14th. Um, this article is by Arthur C. Brooks, and, you know, it's, I think, very beneficial that today, in 2022, fall of 2022, our entire society, not just teachers in education, not just folks in specialized, you know, distance learning and online programs like Dr. Neifers, we have so much experience with online learning and with virtual meetings. It really is amazing. I, I heard the NPR affiliate here in Charlotte, you know, announcing there was a, a public hearing that was going to be in and just streaming it from their Facebook page. I mean, I don't think you would have heard somebody say that a, a while back. Um, the reason I wanted to mention this article is um, it's really sort of a Luddite article. And I, I kind of disagree with the one-sidedness of it. Uh, the subtitle is video chatting may be convenient, but it will never make us as happy as real human interaction. Now, I I do agree with that. You know, we need real face to face interaction. I'm not saying that, you know, every school everywhere should be just like we were in lockdown. But two years ago in March, you know, it. Yes, we need face to face interaction. But I think this article really underplays the transformative power of video and how incredibly beneficial it can be in so many respects. I mean, what are we doing right now? There is, I mean, Jason, when did we last see each other face-to-face? -face? Was it at an, an ISTE or, because it's been a while. I think it's, yes, five years, six years. It's been a good, it's ISTE been a Denver, good while. I think. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. So yeah, when, wow. when was, when was it? That was, I think, 2016. ISTE Denver, yeah. probably. Maybe seven. Okay. So, yeah. So anyway, we just, we wouldn't be having this conversation and Peggy's here with us, you know, and sometimes my dad comes, <laughs> there's other people that listen to where I think we're over like what, uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I was, I was, uh, we, it, it's interesting to, to watch, you know, numbers. I think, uh, on Twitter, we've just, you know, we've crept over 630 and, you know, anyway, this isn't about just how many subscribers are we going to have, but the point <laughs> is this is transformative. I mean, it absolutely is. And podcasting is too. And so I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the word for that is. It may, may not just be Luddite, but I think it's sort of a, is a trope, something that people just kind of go back to over and over again and, and want to, to hammer. And, and, and some of that is like screen time, right? That's been a thing of, oh, screen time. And we're wringing our hands and the children are all going to be horribly, you know, deformed beyond belief because they've looked at a screen for so much. I mean, there is some truth to having limits to screen time and there's truth to needing face-to-face -face interaction. But I thought this Atlantic article was just overly biased towards screen suck, basically. And, and I don't think they are terrible. I think that they're incredibly valuable. And just like so many other technologies, you know, we're, we're doing a disservice if we only focus on the negative and the bad and we ignore, you know, the positive and the good. So anyway. Yeah. I don't know if that was a current event, but that was kind of an op-ed and they ranted. So I wanted to rant. So thank yeah. you for indulging me. Sure. Well, and let me give you kind of a, uh, I'm, I'm a slightly more, or I'm slightly less partisan, I think, than, than you are in regards to, to articles like this. Um, I agree with you holistically that we tend to focus a lot on technology uh, boogeymen as opposed to. Um, I think talking about how it's never as black and white as, as, as this article would suggest. I also think Zoom, Zoom fatigue is a real thing, 
but it's more nuanced in my mind the way I think Dr. Fryer would agree, which is there's high value Zoom meetings and there's low value Zoom meetings. And if you're spending your day on low value Zoom meetings, that's part of the reason why you want to curl into a ball after five hours of them, right? Um, and, and the other thing I would also say in regards to classrooms is that you have to teach differently on Zoom than you do if you're in a, in a face-to-face environment. And if you struggle to make that adaptation, I'm not saying the perfect one exists because I think if teachers got very creative uh, during the pandemic, if they were confined to Zoom school and came up with new ways of doing things. But if you were mostly a lecturing teacher um, uh, uh when you were in the classroom and you were just trying to continue your lectures on zoom, there's a specialized circumstance. I think that works out. I've actually seen uh, published college lectures where the professor was in a, a zoom room and lectured per se, but it was more or less kind of a, a, a discussion that was a little more centered on the instructor. I thought they handled it really well trying to pull people in for questions and keep them engaged. But I've also seen the vast opposite as well. And uh, one thing I would say, uh, two things I would say in regards to Zoom world, the access it's provided is absolutely unparalleled. And although I don't suspect that our um, uh, legislature is going to allow Zoom testimony in the next session, it was a compromise last time around to keep the legislature open during early 2021's COVID pan- pandemic era, but uh, it, it did really increase the opportunity for uh, uh, people that instead of having to travel in the middle of the winter, uh, Helena is in north central Montana. It is a relatively central location, but there are places that are eight hours away by car from the capital in the state of Montana. And that access is unparalleled. I attended several school board meetings last year well outside my town because I wanted to see community dynamics as they related to the pandemic and and support for teachers and, and schools. Um, I wouldn't be able to do that minus Zoom. So let's, you know, let's acknowledge that that uh, especially low value meetings uh, during a, a day on Zoom are pretty problematic. But it's also acknowledged, too, that there are so many ways this provides an extraordinary resource to connect people. And Dr. Fryer, I think you very correctly point out, uh, you and I are a great example of that. We haven't seen each other in a very long time. Um, but it doesn't matter. We get to see each other weekly and, and, and are able to connect on a very interpersonal level. And it's so great. We, we actually send out copies to others. That's, that's, that's how it breaks down for us. <laughs> well, so, and, you know, and, and that's where like screen time, it's the same thing. And maybe you had a, an articulate way of saying that, I think, but it's like, you know, all screen time is not equal. We've talked about this before. Carl Hooker talks about it, right? There's a difference in a, in a engaging, interactive, talk with grandparents and and a child, you know, versus just, you know, passively watching a video or, you know, but even playing a game can involve more interaction. I I totally think you're right. What kind of Zoom experience is this author talking about? More than likely, there were large percentages of of the population that experienced really crummy online learning. (laughs) And so while I, while I'm saying it's good that we've had experience, you know, it would be lovely if we could all experience high quality, outstanding, engaging Zoom meetings and, you know, professional learning. So as a, as a quick sidebar, <clears throat> my wife is beginning her teaching uh, for Union County Public Schools, which is the large school district just south of Charlotte, which is Charlotte Mecklenburg. They have 140,000 kids to give you an idea of scale. So we're talking Florida County scale here, but they're using Canvas K-12. Uh, she's teaching fifth grade. Uh, but she and I have been really impressed with the modules of professional development that they've delivered via Canvas. And I think it's fantastic that they've been able to leverage video and their learning management platform. And I think provide some really high quality professional learning as part of the onboarding process for new teachers. And so that was not something that was part of my experience the last you know, seven years. Um, schools vary, but I think that's incumbent upon us as as technology leaders and not just technology leaders, as school leaders, to try and point out good pedagogy that can happen via online distance as well as face to face and then try to help administrators as and other leaders experience that, too, because sometimes you have people making decisions about things that they really don't have a lot of direct experience with, like teaching online. 
And so that's why if, if you haven't checked out uh, what Mike Gessinelli and Jason, you know, share through NCCE and their professional development, like there is so much the Moodle moot. Hey, that's what I need to do, Jason. I need to come up to the Moodle moot in person next summer with the family. Seriously, that we should we should try for that. Um, anyway, there's just a, a tremendous amount that you guys know and have learned and continue to live that, you know, can inform all the rest of us in terms of what we do, whether we're at a completely online, you know, virtual program or not. So, yay. We have Apple love. We have Montana, you know, digital Academy love too. surprise, surprise. <laughs> there it is. Uh, no, well, I think Dr. Dr. Good grief. Yeah, there it is. Um, actually you're hosting. So I'll wait for you to ask me uh, what my geek of the week is. <laughs> all right. Do you have a geek of the week tonight for us, Jason? As a matter of fact, I do, Dr. Fryer. Um, I'd like to share a great uh, uh, post that I saw going around uh, the Twitters this week. Uh, this is from uh, Free Technology for Teachers writer Richard Byrne, uh, probably the most popular EdTech blogger, uh, second, of course, just to Dr. Fryer, but a popular EdTech uh, blogger. He released a series of what I thought were pretty interesting and novel posters with email etiquette uh, on them. And it's something that I'm heartwarmed to see that, that the uh, uh, people are remembering how important that lesson is, but also this does the job for you. It gives you five simple rules to share with kids on how to, to send better emails and email better email starts with teaching others how to do it. Absolutely. Well, my geek of the week, unfortunately is not a really positive and uplifting one, but it is one that as parents and teachers, we need to be aware of. Uh, this comes to us via a tweet from John Naples Campbell, uh, who is in Elgin, Scotland. And he has a thread that begins with um, the words, as much as I don't want to give this loser any airtime, teachers need to know about him and what he does, because it's very likely, depending on the age of your students, that they've seen one of your videos. And so they. Uh, this is actually pretty clever. So he has included... Uh, screenshots or just, you know, save, yeah, saved, saved images of mainly text, but also some, uh, some images. <sighs> I'm, and should I even say his name? If I don't say his name, it won't be transcribed in, you know, on YouTube or, 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 um, Facebook. But, you know, we have people that may listen to this audio only. So this fellow's name is Andrew Tate. Um, he is a misogynist, uh, very sexist, and the things that he is, quote unquote, teaching young men or, or, or men of any age, I guess, about the ways that women should be treated harshly and violently abused and just treated in terrible ways is horrible. And so especially on the TikTok platform, he's incredibly powerful and he's a big influencer. And so um, I'm glad to revisit this just briefly here as a Geek of the Week for myself, because this is something I am going to be taking to our counselors at our school. And it could be something that that fits into some conversations. This is tough. And as he points out in this Twitter thread, we oftentimes feel ill-equipped to talk about this kind of stuff as teachers in school. It can be more you know, easier to just say, well, that's not appropriate. We're not going to talk about that. But then no one talks about it. But as he points out and some others I think do as well, this kind of thing needs to be talked about seriously. Um, these aren't things to just brush off as far as the attitudes and the behavior that is being endorsed here. Um, and I almost suggested the in the last couple of years doing a parent university at my previous school sort of about rabbit holes and troll culture. And just there's there's some really angry culture out there on the Internet with with. Um, Folks, and I'm not going to get into all of it, but I am going to say this is a tweet worth checking out. This is a guy, unfortunately, that we need to know about because a heck of a lot of especially young boys, but it could be of any age, uh, are listening to this guy, are being influenced by him, um, and the the views and attitudes that he's espousing are very repugnant. So sorry to be Debbie Downer there, but there's your digital citizenship moment. On a better note, Dr. Neifer where can people find you when you are not uh, gracing us with your presence from uh, various and assorted locations around the Pacific Northwest? Uh, best place to find me is Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. And you, Dr. Fryer. I am at uh, W Fryer on the Twitters. You can go to westfryer.com slash after. 
and have more links than you would probably ever want of channels and things that I inter intermittently update to include some cooking stuff. So this has been the EdTech Situation Room for Wednesday, August the 17th, 2022, episode 267. We want to encourage you to check out our website, edtechsr.com, where eventually we will have this show as well as our, I think I'm like three behind right now, uh, our episodes posted. But you can always check out our Google Doc of show notes, uh, which is just edtechsr.com slash links. And if we have a change in schedule or we need to postpone or, or move a show, we will always share that on Twitter. And we try to do that on Facebook as well. And you can also subscribe to our Substack newsletter, which uh, sends out the links we don't talk about as well as those we do. And there'll be a lot of those for this week. So Peggy's asking if I am in North Carolina. Yes, I am, Peggy. I am in Matthews, North Carolina, just south of Charlotte. And uh, have been at work for a little over a week. And Shelly started her, her new job on Monday and uh, has another week or so of professional development. So Rachel has gone north to Randolph-Macon Academy. She gets up at 4.15 every morning to do PT. And she is, she's, she's making it. But it, it is tough. So, um, yeah, this is late for me. But, I, I mean, normally I started at 9 o'clock. So that's why we rolled the, the show early. So. I appreciate Dr. Neifer adjusting his schedule. So, Dr. Neifer, will you be coming to us from an Airbnb next week? Uh, nope. I should be back in beautiful Missoula, Montana, and hopefully it will continue. Warm is fine, but we've avoided big fires so far. So it should be back to Missoula next week. Awesome. And I hopefully, if, if all goes well with our house closing, we'll be coming to you from our new home, uh, which – which is pretty exciting. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, if you can join us live, that is awesome. But however you join, we're glad you're here. Uh, reach out to us. Uh, the Twitters are the great way to, to get a hold of us. And until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe. Take care. Good night.